We're finishing up our sermon series this week that we've called The Guardrails, Nine Biblical Core Values. These are the nine core values of Orchard Community Church. Uh, we go over them in our membership class. We, we look at them as leadership. We evaluate what we're doing and why we're doing it through these nine things. They form, as we've called this series, uh, guardrails. They're guardrails to keep us on track. You know when you begin to bump up against one of these that you need to turn back into the roadway, that you're going off course. And so we've gone through seven of them already. Uh, Today we're going to look at the last two. And I want to start with a story that's probably very, very familiar to pretty much everybody. It's a story about a man who, I think it's fair to say, hit the pinnacle of everything he ever wanted. This idea that if I could just get what I want, then I would be happy. And this story really illustrates what happens when somebody gets to that point. He got everything he wanted so that he could therefore be happy in his mind. And you might know the story. It's the story of King Midas. He wanted to be rich. He wanted all the gold he could ever imagine. He wanted to be the most wealthy and powerful king in all the world. And so he made a wish that everything he touched turned to gold. And at first, of course, it was marvelous. He was the wealthiest man ever. But then he realized he couldn't taste his food. He couldn't pet the dog. He couldn't hug his daughter. And suddenly, all those things that he thought were going to bring him joy, this this situation that if he could just get there, then he would be happy, suddenly he realized he was absolutely and completely miserable. We do the same things. And today we're going to look at the heart of selfishness that is in each of us. When we focus on ourselves, when we turn completely inward and we say, I want, I want to get what will make me happy. I want everybody else to do what will make me happy. I just want to do anything I can to seek my own happiness. We find that in reality, we are incredibly miserable. Charles Kingley said, if you wish to be miserable, think about yourself, about what you want what you like, what respect people ought to pay you. And then, to you, nothing will be pure. You will spoil everything you touch. You will make misery for yourself out of everything good. You will be as wretched as you choose. I said earlier, we've been looking at these nine biblical core values, so here they are, just to review. Passionately God-centered, dependent on God, rooted in the Word of God, believing in grace-driven transformation, becoming fully devoted followers of Christ, and committed to one another, and then actively serving. Those are the seven we've looked at in the three previous sermons. And so today we're looking at eight and nine. What does it mean to to seek or focus on intentional outreach? And and I'm really going to speak less about the church and more about just us as individuals, because that's kind of the focus of this sermon series. Certainly, as a core value of our church, it applies corporately. But what does it mean in our own lives to look outside of ourselves, to reach out to other people in an intentional way? And then what does it mean to live lives of authentic and passionate worship? What is that and what does it look like? And so we're going to start with this idea of intentional outreach. And as I did last week, I want to use a comparison and ask the question, do we want to be a puddle or a pipe? 
What's the difference between a puddle and a pipe? A puddle is very me-focused. It's raining. I want to be filled up. I'm the lowest thing around. Certainly I deserve it more than anything else, anybody else. Everything needs to pour into me. And the puddle just sits there and everything, because it's the lowest thing around, everything pours into it. It's completely dependent upon the environment. It's not there to focus on or serve anything else. It just wants to collect water. And the truth is, the water is useless. It just sits there. It doesn't help anything. It doesn't achieve anything. It just sits there until the sun comes back out and it dries up again. And again, the puddle says, I need to be filled again. We become puddles in our lives when we focus on our own desires and our own happiness. When we become so inward focused that everything is about me. What do I want? What, is, what are other people going to do for me? What is going to bring me happiness? The current culture, I would suggest, is completely consumed with this puddle mentality. In fact, I looked up an article online about giving advice to writing online ads. Yes, there are websites about that. Listen to to just a few of the techniques that the author stated. What really stood out to me about this article was the psychological uh, journals that the author uh, had read and was quoting from and basing her, her, her advice on. She had studied these things. She said this, combine emotional triggers with personalized copy. Now, copy is just words, okay? Personalized copy. Now, now she breaks this out because that's sort of, we don't use those sorts of words normally. Combine emotional triggers with personalized copies. And here she explains, brace yourself as I make a bold claim. Humans are all selfish beings. She goes on to explain how to tap into this selfishness. And, and then she, she gives an example of an ad, and then she evaluates it. This is an ad that she said was really good. Uh, and she says this about the ad. I, I don't actually have the ad. But it says, notice how the ad focuses solely on you while evoking all sorts of emotions such as, and this really blew me away, curiosity, yeah, okay, jealousy, revenge, and satisfaction. She says that's what makes a good ad. Completely focused on the user, completely focused on the you, and you getting what you want, and feeling things such as jealousy, revenge, curiosity, and satisfaction. Then she said, another tip, appeal to the I don't want to be left out fear. We've talked about this before, the fear of missing out. She explains, loss aversion is the psychological term. It's actually in our DNA to feel fear of missing out. I'm not sure where she got that information from. Uh, I've never seen somebody identify a strand of DNA of, you know, here's the fear of missing out. But she's making a point. The key to instilling this feeling, listen to what she's saying. This is what advertisers are trying to do. The key to instilling this feeling in the searcher is inserting some form of urgency, as in, you will be left out of this sale if you don't buy today, or you will not get a free trial if you don't sign up before this date. And we see this all the time, don't we? Now, again, you might say, okay, this commercial, it's an ad, it's the point of it. You're making too big of a deal. But see, what she's pointing out is that that ad is simply tapping into the human condition. 
If these things were not true about ourselves, if this wasn't what we were looking for, if this wasn't what we thought would fill ourselves up, if we weren't inherently selfish, guess what? Advertising wouldn't work and people wouldn't spend money on it at all. But it is staggering the amount of money that is spent on advertising. Because guess what? It works. Because we are selfish beings. She gives other tips But these are the ones that stuck out. And and I started this section by saying modern culture, modern society uh, is is consumed with this puddle mentality. But I don't want to be one of those people of, you know, everything new and modern is bad. The truth is we've always been this way. I I don't want to just rip on modern culture. Let's rip on all culture. We've always been inherently selfish beings ever since Satan presented Eve with the fruit and said, you better take it. You're missing out on something if you don't take this. God knows you'll be like him. He doesn't want that. And she wanted it. It was desirable. It would give her something she wanted. It would fill some some void in her life that she didn't really know she had until some advertiser, in this case Satan, came along and said, take it. Eat it. And ever since then, we've been trying to fill that void in our lives, we have become puddles that are just me-centered, pour into me. I want to drain everything around us and get as much as I can. But pipes are different. See, pipes are outward focused. They're about carrying something from a source to a destination. It's not about the pipe. The, the pipe isn't there to get as much water as it can. It's there to carry the water somewhere. What does this mean for our lives? I think... We know what it means to be a puddle, to be me-centered, to be selfish. But what about being a pipe? What what is it that we're carrying? What is the need that we're trying to meet? And what's the source of that water? If we're going to talk about looking at our lives differently, we need to understand what that different thing is. Plus, we have to be really careful here. Because if we say, okay, I don't want to be me-centered... Therefore, I'm just going to be completely others-centered. I will just focus on what makes everybody else around me happy. That's going to be my goal in life, to make as many people as happy as they possibly can. Think about that for a second. If that's our mentality, all we're doing is helping other people to be a better puddle. We're training them to be a puddle. We're almost making them stuck in being a puddle. We're not actually helping them. In fact, we might be hurting them. So if a pipe is there to meet a need, and and we're going to say in our lives, we're here to meet the needs of others. What does that look like? And here we have to turn to scripture to understand the greatest need of all. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then if we go back to chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. So we put these together, all are sinners, and the wages of sin is death. Here is the greatest need of humanity ever. We are dead in sin. Now, certainly, it is good to talk about needs in the world. There's sickness, 
There's poverty. There's injustice. Certainly, it is good for us to look at these things and address these things. And I believe as Christians, we cannot turn our back on those things. But we can never, please hear me, we can never make them the ultimate need. They are not. The ultimate need of every single person in this room, in your life, and in this world, is to be saved from their sin. And he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Here is the need, dead in sin, and the solution, Jesus Christ. He said the same thing back in chapter 6. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the need and there's the solution. So if we are going to be pipes that serve other people, if we're going to stop being me-focused and instead being focused on people around us and meeting their greatest needs, we need to understand their greatest need is salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to be brought to life. And the means of that need, the thing that we're carrying, is Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news that brings people from death to life. We talk about this as one of our core values of this church. And this is how we state it as a church. And I think it has great implications for all of us as individuals as well. We will proclaim, or I'm sorry, we are committed to the Great Commission. We will proclaim the gospel and its life-changing impact to one another through our preaching, teaching, worship, and relationships. It says, look, even in our fellowship, and our relationships with each other, we need to be thinking about outreach. How do we help each other to go deeper into the gospel, to remind each other about the gospel, to study the gospel, to look deeply at it and apply it to our lives? And then we need to look outside the walls of this church and also look at relationships with others. We will boldly and lovingly live out this truth in our homes, in our communities, and in the world. Are you a pipe? Or a puddle? Have you bought into this lie that if I just seek my own happiness, then I'll get filled up and I'll be happy? That's not who God made us to be. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, after Jesus had gone to the cross, risen from the grave, and he is about to ascend back to heaven, and he shares what's often called the marching orders for all Christians, sometimes called the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And notice where he starts. Where's the focus? He wants them to focus. And he doesn't start with the focus on them. He starts with the focus on him, Jesus. He says, Guys, you need to know who I am. I have all authority. Everything you're going through, everything you will ever face, I have authority over it. Then he says, Therefore, go. We can live our lives as as pipes, as conduits of the blessing of God, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when and only when we understand Jesus is in control. He is in control of all things. He says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, this is what you're going to go. This is, there's a lot of needs you're going to find out there. 
A lot of people that need a lot of love in a lot of different ways. He said, but here's the main thing you need to focus on. Make disciples. To make a disciple is to point someone to Jesus Christ. To help them to understand that their greatest need in the world is to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm the one with all authority. I have sent you and surely I am with you always. Talk about not having to focus on yourself. If we understand God's in control, Jesus has authority over all things. He has done everything necessary for this world to be saved. And he is with us always. We don't have to sit around going, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get? We can say, what is God doing? How do I be a part of that? How how do I go? Because Jesus is already there. I have nothing to fear. How am I going to go and share the gospel with somebody else? Are we going to be a puddle? We shared Thursday night, or I'm sorry, Wednesday night at the Thanksgiving Eve service. So many testimonies. And I love those times. It's an encouragement. It's a challenge at times to hear from others and what God is doing in their life. We need to be careful that we don't just keep the stories of those blessings and what God has done to ourselves. Parents, share them with your kids. There is a lie that is so prevalent in our culture. Let your kids make their own decisions. Don't steer them. Don't steer them astray. They should choose for themselves which God they want to worship. That is not scriptural whatsoever. You share the stories of what God has done in your life. You can't make your child be a Christian. You can't. So don't worry about You're not forcing them into anything. But how can you even give them an option if you don't tell them about the God who is at work in your life? I feel sometimes as parents, we become embarrassed before our own children about the God who has saved us. And then take that to another level. What about with friends and coworkers? And yes, there's laws, and I can't do it at church, or, or hopefully you can share the gospel at church. I can't, <laughs> can't do it at work, you know, my workplace doesn't allow it. Okay, fine. But you can share the gospel in so many different ways. You can live a life that is so gospel-centric that it will cause others to notice. You can share the gospel. Find a way. Are we going to be a pipe? Seek to bring this good news to others who desperately need it for their salvation and for God's glory. Intentional outreach means seeing ourselves on a mission. Our lives are lived with a purpose and on a mission. And i got to tell you, Back when I was a youth pastor, and, and then even as a pastor taking trips, uh, short-term mission trips and, and uh, you know retreats or whatever it is, when you get people out of their comfort zone on a mission with a purpose, you see God work in magnificent ways. And they say, man, if, if God can do this here in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, wherever it is, if I see him work here, isn't he also at work back home? Can't I also serve him there? Now, how do you know if you're a pipe or a puddle? I want to give you some sort of evaluations in your own life to ask some questions. Uh, So here's a question. What fills your thoughts? Are your thoughts filled with your own needs or the needs of others? It's a good starting place. Are, Are we consumed with our own needs or with the needs of others? 
But let's take it a little deeper. Do you see other people as lost and needing salvation? Or do you see them as people who can either help you or hurt you? Do we go in our life and, and look at people in relationships and say, well, do they make me happy? Are they helping me? Are they nice to me? Are they making me feel good? Or do we look at them and say, that person needs Jesus Christ? I think especially as a Christian, that's a good way to evaluate ourselves. The other question would be, what are you filled with? You see, a, a puddle fills itself up with selfishness. Everything just sort of pours into it. But, but a pipe, someone on a mission for Jesus Christ, is filled with who Christ is. The gospel of Jesus Christ flows through us in our actions and in our words and in our attitudes. Puddle has to collect water or it will disappear, but a pipe is connected to a constant source and supply. Now think about this. A puddle only feels good when circumstances are just right so that the rain comes and it pours into it. And then other times, it's not what it wants to be. And it's miserable. But a pipe, as long as it's connected to a good source, is always serving the purpose for which it was made. Man, which one do you want to be? I want to know. Each and every moment of my life, I am serving the purpose for which I was made. And if that's going to be the case, we need to be saved by Christ ourselves. We can't be a pipe serving the needs of others if we're not even connected to the right source to begin with. So that's a third question. Are you filled with Jesus Christ? We want to be focused on outreach, intentional outreach. But as I said before, we have to be careful because if we just focus on what makes other people happy, if that's our idea of outreach, then we can become so people-focused that we will change what we do and what we believe in order to keep others happy. And so the next core value is absolutely crucial. And this is the final one that wraps it all up. Biblical core value number nine. Authentic and passionate worship. And I want to break this down into its component values. They're pretty obvious. What does it mean to be authentic? Authentic. I looked this up. Webster, still around online now. Uh, Webster's definition, one among many, worthy of acceptance or belief as conforming to or based on fact. Authentic worship is Something that is based on fact. To be authentic means it's in line with reality. It is true. Another definition, it's not false or imitation. It's it's real. It's authentic. We may just have to shut off one of these speakers or something. I think it might be that piano speaker. Not false or imitation. Authentic worship means worship that is based on truth. Now, this is important because it's very easy, not only today, but I think throughout the history of Christianity, to make worship based on what we want it to be, what makes us feel good, thank you, in the moment. Authentic worship is in line with reality, with truth, and the only way it can be truly authentic is if it's in line with who God truly is. And if we're going to know that, we've got to go to the source. We've got to go to His Word. It means worship that is based on truth and worship that is true. 
Meaning, we want to worship. We're not just going through the motions. We're not authentic in worship if we're here for worship or in our lives, and we'll look at that in a second, and we're just going through the motions. That's not authentic either. Now, let me help you to see this, and and I think it's very helpful to look at a romantic relationship. Let me take my my relationship with my, my wife, my love for my wife. What would authentic love look like? Authentic love means I know my wife. I know who she is. Maybe not perfectly, obviously, but I know who she is. And I truly love who she is. Inauthentic love or fake love means that maybe I don't truly know my wife. Never taken the time to get to know her. Or maybe I've just made a picture in my head of who my wife should be and I'm in love with that. And as a pastor, someone who's done couple counseling before, that is incredibly common. We fall in love with a fake picture of somebody else. And then we're mad when they don't live up to it. That is inauthentic. It is fake. So that's one way to have an inauthentic love. The other possibility is that I don't really love my wife. I could be inauthentic by just going through the motions each and every day, never truly loving her, but acting as if I did. Authentic worship is based on truth and is true. We are truly worshiping and not just faking it. So we have authenticity, which means it's rooted in and based on truth. It is real. Then we have passionate. I looked this up in Webster as well. Got to be careful here. Just take a couple of definitions. Capable of affected by or expressing intense feeling, enthusiastic. There is a connection to the core of who we are, an excitement that overflows in our lives. That's what we mean by passionate worship. Let me go back to my relationship with my wife. Passionate love means I feel love deeply for my wife. My emotions are truly affected. There is a joy in thinking about her and being with her. The opposite would be a marriage of just checking the boxes. Did I serve her? Did I hug her? Did I buy her something nice? Or maybe just being calloused and unfeeling all the time. I thought, I don't know why this popped into my head. You know the, is it a movie, play, probably both, Fiddler on the Roof, right? And, and the husband, Tevya, I hope I'm saying that right, asks his wife, Golda, if she loves him. Do you love me? I'm not going to sing it. Do you love me? <laughs> Thank you. And she answers, for 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow, and after 25 years, why talk about love right now? See, she's struggling because she has a picture of love that is checking boxes. I washed your clothes, kept your house, raised your children. Of course I love you. And throughout the song, he keeps asking her, and he keeps getting deeper and deeper to a heart issue. And by the end of the song, they both realize that their love is something more. There is a passion underneath all of it. There's a depth of, of emotion and desire that is there. They truly love each other. So authentic and passionate tells us 
how to worship, but it doesn't tell us what worship truly is. And we've got to get this right. We need to start with who we are. In Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now that phrase there, created mankind in his own image, sticks out like a bright, shining light in the first chapter of Genesis. Because there's a pattern with each day of creation and the animals and the trees and everything that's created. There's this ongoing pattern and then there's this massive break. And it happens right here when he creates humanity in his image. And the way Hebrew literature, especially poetry, and there's a lot of poetic language in this verse, the way it would emphasize something is a pattern that then is broken. And it is God saying, don't miss this. People, you are different. I made you different. I think about you differently. I relate to you differently. You are made in my image. God created us. To be in a unique relationship with him. Different than anything else in all of creation. To have a relationship where we can reflect who God is. In a unique and powerful way. So who is God? We get a wonderful picture of this in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is taken in this this profound vision to the throne room of heaven. And he sees these angelic beings around the throne. And they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah is undone. He says, my life's over. He says, I've seen the all-holy God. Now think about that for a moment. How did we get from Genesis 1.27 that we were created to reflect God's glory to a man seeing the glory of God and feeling like he's going to die? Because something came in and broke that relationship. And that which should have been joy in the garden is now misery in Isaiah chapter 6. God is all holy. There is no sin in him. He is completely righteous. And his glory is on display like a bright shining light showing who he is. And we were created to stand in the beauty and the overwhelming majesty of his glory and reflect it. That's where we find our purpose. That's where we are fulfilled. And yet Isaiah says he's undone. Everything God does is to display His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Psalm 19, verse 1. And then it talks about salvation in Ephesians, verse 1, 11 through 12. In Him we were also chosen. Speaking about Christ here. Having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. Why did Christ save you? And and our immediate answer might be because we needed saved or because he loved us. Both are true. But do you know the greatest reason the scripture gives for why Christ saved us? For his glory. For his glory. But notice a pattern here. When God works for his glory... We get the greatest benefit. The lie of sin is that when we work for our own glory, we will get the greatest benefit. But that's not true. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say this is a secret of life. When we live for the glory of God, we get a greater benefit than if we live for ourselves. In other words, when God is first and we are second, we are actually greater than when we try to put ourselves first. And sin steps into that and distorts it. C.S. Lewis has a, a wonderful quote from his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And I grew up in a church setting that was all about uh, trying to kind of squash sin in our lives. Now, that's good. I mean, you know, we, we don't want to be a bunch of sinners running around. We should try to stop sinning. That's good. But it was always to stop that because it's bad. You shouldn't want that. It's bad. You shouldn't want it. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And then when you get older and you try some of these things, you go, eh, it's not that bad. Because we always know better than our parents. And, and I got to tell you, this idea from Lewis and so many others just opened up my mind to, to something that was such, a, a, it just changed my heart in so many ways. To be able to say, of course sin seems like it's good, but listen to what he says. It's not that our desires are too strong, but too weak. Instead of approaching it and saying, well, you shouldn't want that, you shouldn't want that, and you shouldn't want that. What if instead we said, you should want more? You're settling for something far too little. That inappropriate relationship. Seeking after those things in your life that are forming addictions, you're settling. Whatever the sin is, you're settling for something so much less than what God has for you. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is an online ad Just click here, just try this, just do this, and you'll feel better. It'll meet your need, and it's just settling for something so much less. So what is worship? Worship is living for the glory of God, and nothing less. To form our attitudes, our our ideas, our, our emotions, our actions, everything focused on reflecting the glory of who God is whether it's in church on Sunday morning or at work on Monday morning or at home in the evenings, wherever it might be, living for the glory of God. We are saved for God's glory. We are called to live for God's glory. We even love other people and share the gospel with them for God's glory. What we do on Sunday morning in church is just a slice, just a tiny little sliver of worship. If we define worship as this one hour, or worse, just like a half hour of singing within this one hour, we are completely missing out on what worship truly is. We should be, must be, worshiping God constantly. Doing everything that we do with an attitude of, am I bringing glory to God in this moment? Whether anybody notices or sees or not, that doesn't matter. You can worship God when nobody's around you. I have an attitude that focuses on him, being grateful for who he is and what he's done in your life by seeking to be obedient to him even if nobody will ever notice. That's worship. Worship. When we come together on Sunday, it's it's like being candles burning for the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God all week long, and then we bring those flames together. And the fire gets bigger. 
And when we sing, when we pray, when we fellowship, when we get together, all those flames come together. And those among us that are struggling and, and they're just smoldering to bare embers, they can get rekindled because of the worship in other people's lives around them. There's a great story about a pastor that visited a farmer who hadn't been at church in ages. And this farmer didn't like talking about Jesus, didn't like talking about anything, really. And the pastor showed up late one night, knocked. farmer said, come on in, sit down. And they just sat watching the fire in the fireplace. And it is sort of burned close down to embers where there's just a few things on fire, but a lot of different embers. And they sat for a while, not saying anything. And the pastor went over and he took one of the logs that was just barely on fire and he grabbed it with the tongs and he set it on the hearth away from the fire. And he sat back down. And guess what happened to that log? The fire just went out. And after a couple more minutes, the pastor went over and he grabbed the tongs, he picked up that log, he set it back in the fire. Guess what happened to the log? It lit up again. He turned to the farmer and he said, I hope I see you on Sunday. Good night. And he left. We need to come together for worship. But we need also to be worshipers each and every day of our lives. We say it this way as a church, we are created for one primary purpose, to worship the triune God. We desire to accomplish this through every aspect of our ministry. God alone is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory that is due to him for who he is and for what he has done for us in Christ. We believe that worshiping God begins in our hearts, Rooted in the truth of who God is, we will have a lifestyle of worship as a community of believers and as individuals. So let me ask you, do you live a life? Oops. <laughs> of authentic and passionate worship? Is, is that core to who you are? That you're focused on the truth of God and living that out in your life. That everything that you do is for His glory. This is our purpose as a church. And I pray it's your purpose as an individual. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. You can bring glory to God even through your imperfections. Because it displays His grace. I'm not saying run out and try to be imperfect. Don't get me wrong. But when we struggle, when we stumble, when we fall... When our sin comes to the forefront, to quit wallowing in the sin and instead point to the grace of God. And hopefully to extend that same grace to those around us. What are you living for? What's your purpose? Are you a puddle or a pipe? Are you a reflection of God's glory or just sort of a, a black hole sucking it all into yourself? Are you trying to gain all the glory, the happiness, and the joy for yourself? Or are you living to display the glory of God? In a moment, we're going to spend a couple more minutes in corporate worship, bringing all those candles together, all those flames together to worship in song. It's one way to express worship. And I want you to think, am I being authentic? Do I truly mean the words that I'm saying? Does it conform to the truth of what God's word says? But also, let's, let's not just keep it all in our head and be all brainy. Am I being passionate about it? Do I truly feel what I'm singing and saying about God? Both need to be there. 
God created us as intellectual and emotional people. We want authentic and passionate worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray right now that you would cause each and every one of us to question our motivations, to look into our own hearts and to see any selfishness that might be there. And maybe for some that that selfishness has led us to being so consumed with ourselves that we're too busy to love those around us and especially to love them by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And so I pray that we would be intentional in our lives about reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, may we look at our lives and say, am I truly focused on you and your glory in every area of my life? Am I authentic in living a life of worship? Do I truly mean it? Do I know who you are? Have I dug into your word? And then am I passionate about it? Is there a joy that comes from worshiping you? Obviously not all the time as we go through struggles, but God, in those times, may your grace sustain us. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has not been transformed by Jesus Christ, and they're just looking at their life saying, yeah, I'm just a puddle. And I want to be changed. God, you transform people. You take the selfish person and you set us free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here struggling in that area, may today be the day that they turn their eyes off of themselves and turn to your son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.